I survived. <laughs> uh, I think most of you know me by now. I'm Scotty, the pastor here. I get the privilege of, of leading this wonderful group of people in the pursuit of Jesus as we try and figure out what he's calling us to do and how we follow him in the world. And if you are at all aware of what's going on in the world, I want to start before I jump into the message by just talking about what happened this week. So most people, I don't think anyone is ignorant to the fact that this week there was a Supreme Court decision, Roe versus Wade was overturned. And in a room like this, and in a country like this, there is a huge variety of feelings toward that. There are Christians who are celebrating that this is a victory for the unborn child, and there are Christians and and other people who are grieving that they feel like they've lost rights and they've lost freedoms that they had before. And so here's the job we have as Christians. We have a hope and we have convictions that we stand on, but we have an obligation to walk in a world in a way that points to Jesus. And so some people in this room, you want to celebrate. Here's my encouragement to you. Celebrate, but do it with grace. And be careful because when you're posting on Facebook and when you're talking to your friends in a coffee shop, the people sitting around you may not agree and may be grieving and your celebration could turn them away from Jesus. And if you're here and you're someone or, or you know people who are grieving about this, one, one of the beautiful things that we do as Christians is we come alongside the grieving and the hurting. We give them hope and to listen and to hear and to understand um, and, and, and so we've got to be aware of what's going on on both sides of the fence. So we've got to celebrate when we feel like things are happening that protect people. We've got to understand the plight of people that are grieving in this season. And, and I'm going to say something pretty strongly. If you're a guy in the room, you should be much more quiet than the women in the room because this is an issue that affects women in the country more than it affects the men in the country. So we need to be really careful when we speak because it really hurts the women around us if we when, when we raise our voices and they're quick to shoot it down because it's men who are speaking. So as male Christians, we have to be really careful with our tongues in this season and allow the women to carry the weight of listening and responding to the people around about us. So celebrate if you want to celebrate. Grieve if you feel like grieving at the end of the day. No legislation does what Jesus will do. Um, and so we fix our eyes on him and we look ahead to his return. And that's what we're going to look at, you know. I, I got teary in that song, Anastasis. I'm so glad we're singing it. He shall return in robes of white. Or dang, I'm going to cry. The blazing sun shall pierce the night and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. That's what this is about. Um, and so this morning, as we finish up Zechariah, we're going to fix our eyes on him. We've reached the end of Zechariah today. <laughs> I think most people are happy about that. <laughs> so they don't ever preach this book again. Um, so we've reached the end. It's been a journey. This is a crazy book with crazy content, but it's hugely applicable to what God is doing in our church and what he's doing in the world. And so before we jump into the, the, the chapter, I, I want to I think about, in light of what's going on in the world, I want to think, and I want to do this to try and put us in the mind of Israel. As Israel have returned to the land, they're in the process of rebuilding the temple, they're hearing these messages from Zechariah that a future is coming when, when uh, sin is going to be defeated and they're going to be back restored to the land and, uh, and, and they're not going to be persecuted anymore. They're looking ahead and they're hearing this message, but 
they're looking at the world round about them and they're seeing persecution and they're seeing oppression. So I just want you to think for a minute about the pain that exists in the world. We're seeing it in, in, in what exists that causes legislation like Roe versus Wade to have to be uh, on, on the TV and in the news. I think about people in our church and friends of yours that are currently battling cancer. I think of the prayer requests we pray for every Tuesday. There's a group of people connected to our church who have kids that are battling leukemia and other horrible cancers. We think of the war in Russia and Ukraine. We think of what's going on in Afghanistan. We think about the various diseases. The one that's been at the forefront of our mind for the last two years is COVID. And there are people from this church who, who we have lost due to contracting that. There are people in your lives that are gone earlier than had been anticipated because of that. I think about persecution that's gone on around the world. I think about persecution that Christians experience here and in certain forms. I think about friends of mine around the globe that are suffering for the gospel. I think about the way politics is dividing families and neighborhoods and communities and churches. I think about addictions, homelessness, poverty, uh, the broken families, children growing up in foster care systems. I think about job losses, murders, rapes, identity confusion, shifting values, sexual ethics. I look out at the world and I get heavy. I had a heavy week this week to get personal. I was on the phone to my mom uh, Thursday or Friday, probably Friday morning, talking with mom and she's just started. Mom's been battling cancers for the last 10 years. She, they've just switched her to a new re, uh, chemo regime because the chemo that she's on is not having an effect on the cancer at all. And she was telling me the story. They're saying, do you want to give up or do you want to try one more? And so this is real. Like we're sitting in our lives that are suffering and hurting. And, and we've got all of these promises in scripture that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And it's hard sometimes to look at the world round about us and, and, and have hope. It's hard to look at the world and, and look at the Bible and go, how do these things go together? Because I don't see happening in front of me the things that I wish I could see. And, and if you feel that, that's where Israel is in this moment as Zechariah is declaring these things. They're trying to rebuild the temple. There's persecution around them. The, the, the people in society around them... Uh, other nations that they've been living under do not hold the values that God has said are important. Their own leaders have been walking away into sin. The country was exiled because they couldn't obey what God had called them to do. It's a mess. And in the middle of that mess, as they're feeling discouraged and down, this is the, the, the end of Zechariah's story. Now, if I'm being honest... I'm just trying to be honest this morning. I have my moments where I, I look at the world and the state that it's in, and I just think, has the world ever been this bad? I have moments where I'm looking, and I just think, this is awful. Like, is, is it just, is this it? Is this, is this as bad as it gets? But then I have my moments too, where I think back on the biblical story, I think on... Paul writing a Corinth, I think about what's going on in the time of Zechariah. Women are being raped, kids are being sacrificed to, to false gods, nations are coming in and annihilating other nations, prostitution, all of the things I think we see today. So sometimes I'm like, the world's just getting worse and worse, and sometimes I sit back and I go, is it any worse now than it was back then? But here's the deal, it doesn't matter, because sin will always make this world broken, and whether it's the same pattern that we've always seen 
or whether we're at the end where the world is as worse as it's ever going to get, the answer and the solution is always the same. We trust the words of Scripture. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And we rejoice that we know the end of the story. So let me read Zechariah chapter 14. Here's Zechariah 14 starting in verse 1. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south, and you will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend all the way to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord with no distinction between day and night. When the evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the east, to the Dead Sea, half of it to the west, to the Mediterranean Sea in the summer and in the winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth and on that day there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. The whole land from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem will become like the Arabah, but Jerusalem will be raised up high from the Benjamin Gate to the site of the first gate to the corner gate and from the Tower of Hananel to the royal wine presses and will remain in its place. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're standing on their feet. This is a great picture. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, the people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Jerusalem too will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of the surrounding nations will be collected. Great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horse and the mules, the camels and the donkeys and all the animals in those camps. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty and to celebrate the, feast of, the festival of tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty... Uh, If they do not go up to worship the king, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses The cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. 
And with that, Zechariah ends as strangely as it begins. (laughs) This chapter is powerful. Just like chapters 12 and 13, this chapter hinges on this phrase, this clarion call that is the hope that we're sitting with right now. And it's simply this, a day is coming. A day is coming. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. Our job as believers is to live with this in our mind. A day is coming. So let me, let me take the theological part of that aside for now and just ask you this question. What would you do differently if you knew that today was your last day? What would you do differently if you knew that you would die tomorrow? How would you spend your last 24 hours? Who would you spend it with? What would you tell people? How would you live your faith today if you knew Jesus was going to arrive tomorrow in the middle of your activities and see what it is that you're up to for his kingdom? How would you live differently? Whatever your answer is, do it today. Do it today. The promise of scripture is that Jesus is coming back and the call to us is to live every day as if it's our last to love as if this is our last day on the earth, to proclaim the gospel as if this is the last day on the earth, and to fix our eyes on the fact that Jesus is coming back. Sorry, I'm a bit excited about this. I'm trying to hold it in. This is central to our faith. He is coming. We will see him face to face, and we're going to be transformed to be like him because we see him as he is. The rest of this chapter is all building around this phrase, this day is coming. So I want to look at six movements or six signs or six events that happen in this chapter that are the hope that we're longing for. And it's the hope that we offer to the world around about us that are struggling uh, and have no hope. So six elements that are going to happen on that day. The first, and this has been repeated all the way through Zechariah, if you've been following us. The first one, God will fight for his people. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I'm not sure how the Israelites would have appreciated this message. They've just been brought, remember where we're at, they've just been brought back to the land They've been trying to rebuild the temple and not. And then Zechariah's on the scene like, hey, finish this because God's with you. And then he finishes like all of these dreams and visions to assure them that God is going to rescue them. He's going to heal them. He's going to cleanse the land. And then he's closing his message with, by the way, all the nations of the world are going to surround Jerusalem. They're going to kill a bunch of you. They're going to rape a bunch of you. They're going to plunder but don't worry, God's going to fight for you. <laughs> An exile is coming where half the people are going to be exiled. Don't give up building just because this is coming in the future, but I'm going to tell you the end of the story. You're not going to get it right. Once again, you're going to fall short of what I require of you. Once again, nations are going to come against you. Um, we talk about Armageddon, this moment where all the nations of the world descend upon Israel in this giant battle. And as this moment happens, God is coming to fight. 
It's hard to make sense of this passage sometimes because you look back on history. Some people read this and they go, this is referring to AD 70 when Jerusalem was sacked. When the Roman Empire came in, they burned the temple, they kicked everyone out of the land. This is the exile that this is referring to. This is the nations coming against the people of Israel. But when you read the rest of the passage, that doesn't make sense. It's talking about something that's coming in the future, a future day. Um, But again, here's the deal. It doesn't matter how many nations come against Israel. It doesn't matter how bad the attack is, broadened out to his people. It doesn't matter how much comes against the church. It doesn't matter how many nations or governments oppose us. God will fight. This one, though, he's making it really clear. This is the last time because God's going to fall He's going to be the divine warrior descending, arriving on the Mount of Olives. What happens? The mountain ruptures. So Jesus descends. He lands on the Mount of Olives. The the, the mountain splits in two and creates a valley through the middle. And the people are going to flee. Why is this significant? This comes up a couple of points in this passage. So if you've been to Jerusalem or if you've seen pictures of Jerusalem, picture it like a bowl. So there's a wall of mountains that surround, there's two valleys with a wall of mountains that surround this little hill in the middle. You can't see the hill as much today as it was historically, but Jerusalem was built on this hill with valleys surrounding it and mountains all the way around. And the only way in and out is this flat place coming from the north into Jerusalem. So it was protected by the mountains. And if an enemy is coming at you from the north, there is nowhere to go. It's why the psalmist standing in in Jerusalem, got up to the temple, he says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Because the nations are coming. Where's the help? No one can get to us over the hills. There's only one way to come. My help's going to come from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So you've got this moment where he's describing they're in Jerusalem. They're surrounded by mountains. There is no escape. The, 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 The nations are coming against Israel to attack them. And God descends on the Mount of Olives. He splits the mountain in two and creates a valley to allow the people of Israel to escape out of the city in a way that he's protecting them. I'm like, God is so concerned about his people. He's going to change the landscape to protect them. I think that's, I think that's pretty rad. Maybe, maybe it's not for you. I, I just tell over your head. So God's going to come, he's going to fight. You're going to see more of this. So, so number one, he's going to fight. Number two is the clearest part of this. This is the height of all, right? Jesus will return. Verse five says, then the Lord will come and all the holy ones are going to come with him. And, and the impact that this is going to have on the world, the impact that this has on those people, all of the things that we're looking at in the world right now that break our hearts, that grieve us, these things are about to be put right. Jesus returns with his holy ones. Some people believe this is the angelic host that's arriving with us. Some people, if you're pre-trib, believe the church has been rescued out of the world and taken away. And this is Jesus returning with his people. Some people, if you're post-trib, this is the moment where the dead are resurrected and all the angels and all of God's people arrive together in this moment. It doesn't matter who it is or how it is, Jesus is returning with his people. And what does this mean? Number three in this passage, Jesus will be king. Jesus will be enthroned. These are basic truths, but we got to get them in our heads. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name. 
the only name. In this moment, all that has ever been prophesied comes true. Every one of those Psalms that talks about the King or the Messiah being enthroned comes true. All of those declarations of the enemies being defeated comes true. All of those declarations about the end of sin and death is coming true. All of the truth about God's presence with his people is coming true. God's dwelling restored with his people, but him enthroned the way it was always intended to be. If you know your Bible well, then you'll you'll see the allusion in here to one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament, one of the most central prayers for Judaism. Every day, multiple times a day, Jews say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So when Zechariah saying this, the Lord's going to be king over the whole earth on that day, the Lord alone and his name alone is the fulfillment of what the Jewish people have been crying out for since the beginning. So Jesus comes back to fight. He returns in splendor. He's enthroned. The rest of the passage is really about what is going to happen. And I don't know that we always think about the the extent of what is going to happen. When Jesus returns, the effects are astronomical. Cataclysmic events happen as Jesus returns. So so the next thing that I want to talk about here is cosmic upheaval. It says here, on that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness, Living water will flow out from Jerusalem. The whole land from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Araba. Some Bible translations say will become a plain. But Jerusalem will be raised up high. So Jesus is returning. There's no question about whether he's coming or not. No one's going to be going, did he come? Especially not with social media, right? Everyone's going to see this. But there's going to be massive changes. Number one, no sunlight. But interesting, the scientific world that tries to describe how the world was formed and cut God out of it says there was a big bang, the world is forever expanding, not forever, the world is expanding, but one day it's going to stop expanding and it's all going to kind of retract and suck back in and blow up again. So that's one of the scientific theories. Before that to happen, they say, the sun is pro- it's a star, so the sun's going to explode. And when the sun explodes, the earth is going to be plunged into darkness and coldness, and then we're all going to die. I love that Zechariah throws this in here. There will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. This is not the sun is destroyed, the world is plunged into the cold age, and everybody dies. This is... There's no more sunlight, but there's a new source of life that is going to sustain the people and bring what is needed. The second one, living water is going to flow from... We saw this last week. On that day, a fountain is going to be opened. This living water physically, uh, Israel is this place that's, that's fairly arid. There's lots of desert. 
you've got the Jordan Valley, which is a lot of the stuff in Scripture happens around the Jordan Valley, the central Benjamin Plateau. And, and it's a fertile ground because you've got this river coming all the way down. But lots of Israel, other than the Jezreel Valley and the Jordan Valley, is fairly dry. And so they're describing this moment, living water is going to flow out of the temple. So physically, a new source of water that's going to bring life, it's going to go to the left and the right. So it's going to cover the whole earth and supply the whole earth. And it's going to turn Israel into a fertile and fruitful land. Spiritually, we read it in the last chapter, in chapter 13, verse 1. It's going to bring spiritual cleansing. So this water, as it flows out of the land and out of the temple, is going to bring cleansing from idolatry. All the way through Scripture, water symbolizes the Spirit. And so Ezekiel, as he talks about this in chapter 47, is talking about this water that brings life. And whenever it goes, life happens. Um, the work of the Spirit as it spreads from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And then the third cosmic piece are these geographical shifts. And sometimes, you, again, you don't notice what's happening as the writer is writing, but it's a recreation narrative. This is the creator arriving on the world and recreating. And the language that we see is all around this. And what happens? Think about that image of, of Jerusalem as this bowl with this little mountain in the middle. It says what's going to happen is the mountains are going to come flat and the valleys are going to be raised up and everything's going to be flat. And then in the middle of this, I'm going to raise up Jerusalem. So everybody everywhere is going to be able to see the place where God has decided to allow all of this to happen. So this is like, this is not just an earthquake This is not just like a few things moving. This is a complete reworking of the landscape to elevate this place. It's a creation event, or you could call it a recreation event. And so then you jump to places like Revelation, where there's a new heaven and a new earth being created. Now, again, there's all sorts of theological places we can go with this. I read a book a long time ago. There's a reformed theologian called Henry Bavinck, and he put this comment in a book that I've been sitting with for about 10 years and just mulling over. We read Revelation and this description of a new heaven and a new earth. One view is God's going to destroy this world, and he's going to give us a new one, and we're all going to leave this one and go to the new one and live. Some people think the new heaven and the earth is this earth just remade and fixed. Some people think that Jesus is going to come back after the world has perfected itself. I'll just leave that there. Uh, <laughs> that was held for a long time. That was, held in the, that was actually the predominant view in the U.S. when the U.S. was founded. Yeah. But yeah, this, this recreation event. So Henry Bavinck made this comment, and I, I just keep chewing with it. So make of this what you want. It says, in scripture, we talk about a new heaven and a new earth. And so we look ahead to this day where this new creation happens and this old one is destroyed. But he says the same language is used in verses that we know really well, like 2 Corinthians 5.17. I am a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So what does it mean that I am a new creation? that my old is destroyed, but my new is here, and that one day we're going to have glorified bodies. Um, And what does that mean for the earth to be a new creation? I'm just going to raise some theological questions for you to ponder a little bit. The key to this that I just want to highlight, this is a recreation account. 
There's no accident of what is happening. It's not just some natural disaster that fulfills this. God is reworking the entire landscape uh, to suit his purposes. Isaiah described moments like Zechariah 200 years prior to Zechariah writing. This is Isaiah chapter 60. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again. Your moon will wane no more and the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. So 200 years prior, Isaiah predicting this moment. We've mentioned before that Revelation is very influenced by Zechariah. Let's read the end of the story, the end of the book that we have. Let's look at the end of the story, just snippets of this. And I just want you to see the parallel um, as they're drawing on the imagery from Isaiah and from Jeremiah and from uh, Ezekiel and from Zechariah specifically. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first time heaven and the fir- for the first earth heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea there's no longer any sea why does that matter because there's now a new river flown from the temple of God. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. I don't know who holds this theology in their head, but let me just correct it. We don't die and float away to heaven. Heaven comes to us, right? I saw the holy city coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, and I heard the voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, every cry that we have given over the things that we see in the world around about us. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order has passed away. The curse of Genesis 3 is defeated. Skipping on to the end of chapter 21, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, nor will there ever be night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops each. Remember that they were kicked, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden because God in their sinful condition didn't want them to be able to get access to the tree of life. Um, Bearing crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. I love this phrase when I look at the state of the world right now. The wars and the fighting that's gone on, the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. 
It's so easy to lose sight in verses like this and all the imagery. So there's imagery and symbols and pictures that we can get caught up. But here's the core of this. The focus is the presence of God back amongst his people. As believers, we are pursuing a God that we do not see. This God that we are singing to, that we're shaping our lives around, that we're denying our desires in order to live according to him. He's telling us there's a day where he's going to be right in front of us, wiping tears from our eyes. This person is about his presence with us. His light drives out the darkness. All through scripture, God is light and you can't have light and darkness dwell together. We don't need the sun to provide light anymore because instead of a sunlight whose job is to dispel the physical darkness for a little period of time, we're gonna have the light of the glory of Jesus dispelling the darkness in the world and all of the sin goes with it. There can be no sin when his light is the thing that's reigning. This passage, life, light, health, blessing, abundance, healing, peace is the promise that is coming. Not only does his return bring cosmic upheaval, but the description here of universal worship. I think it's interesting, you know, we we have ideas in mind of what worship is. And we tend to reduce worship to one of two things. We either say Romans 12.1, like offering your bodies a living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship, which is great. All of our life's given to him. Or we say, you know, it's that thing you do music where you sing some songs. And that is worship. Uh, one of the most common Hebrew words for worship is the one that they're using here. The, the survivors from all the nations are going to go up year after year to worship the king. The word worship means to get down on your knees before the Father. This is to bow down on your face before the King. And that is one of the most common words. We just see worship and we think they just get together and they sing. (laughs) But you know the Revelation story, as soon as the Lamb is there, the elders fall flat on their faces. So someone asked me once, why why when you're worshiping are you sometimes down on your knees? (laughs) because I'm not worthy to stand in the presence of the king. And so I get on my knees before him and give him the worship that he's deserved. People from around the world come into worship. The part in here, I mean, this, this passage is crazy. Let me read part of this again. If you've got your Bible open. Uh, verse 12 in Zechariah 14. So I just want you to remember the craziness that's going on here. The plague the Lord's going to strike the nations. Their flesh are going to rot. Their eyes are going to rot in their sockets. Their tongues are going to rot and fall out. They're going to seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Then all the wealth of the nations is going to be collected. A similar plague is going to strike the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys. Then the survivors that are left are going to come up year after year and they're going to worship the Lord. We don't often realize again the context that is in mind as this passage is being discussed. It's clearly rooted in and alluding to the Exodus story. So this is the word plagues that happens. What happens? God's people are down into Israel. God's saying into Egypt. God's like, hey, Moses, we're going to rescue my people out of slavery and take them into the promised land. Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they tell him. And Pharaoh says, no. 
And as a result, these plagues happen to the land of Egypt. And what happens? Uh, God's people are there. Plagues like darkness are falling on the land. There's this beautiful, there's this beautiful light. All of this judgment has happened to, to Egypt. Now, there's these little moments where it says, but it didn't happen in Goshen where God's people were. So these atrocities were happening and his people protected in the middle of it. This is all the context of this passage. You see it, there's going to be plagues on people and on animals. Just as when they, they crossed the Red Sea, the, 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 the armies of Egypt were thrown into panic and the horses and the people were drowned as they see their enemies' horses thrown into panic. Just as when Israel was eventually driven out of Egypt toward the promised land, the people of Egypt paid Israel to leave. And they started giving them wealth and riches and saying, go, please leave our land. And it says in this way, they plundered the the nation of Israel. And this image of the nations and their wealth being given to Israel. And, and, And if there's any doubt that that is the context, what does it say? The survivors go up year after year to worship and celebrate the festival of tabernacles. And what's the festival of tabernacles? It's the festival Israel celebrated when they left Egypt And they wandered in the wilderness and they built tents to thank God for his provision and his protection. So all of this context is the Exodus narrative and God continuing the work that he's always done of rescuing his people to bring them into the promises that he had. One one commentator, I think this was Andrew Hill, says... uh, The Feast of Tabernacles is a celebration of great joy and thanksgiving that emphasizes agricultural fertility and the gift of rainfall. It remembers the exodus and deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It was a festival open to the nations and had enthronement implications of honoring the kingship of God. This is the Feast of Tabernacles that these people are coming to celebrate. Deliverance, open to all. And, uh, and all this language of these plagues and, and, and the judgment of no rain as they celebrate the fertility of the land. Universal worship as they celebrate who God is. So cosmic upheaval, u- universal worship. And then this last part of the passage, which seems like the most obscure way to end, the final result is that there's no more division between what is common and what's holy and complete holiness as the world becomes the sanctuary for God. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. Do you, no, we don't, right? We don't understand how sacrilegious and offensive this verse is, because where was the inscription holy to the Lord? It was on the headdress that the high priest wore when he went into the holy of the holies. This was a special thing that was preserved for this one person to engage in this one act on the Day of Atonement is going to be so commonplace that people are going to be putting it on the bells that decorate their horses. The cooking pots in the Lord's house, the ones that the, the, the brass pots and the, the clay pots that they break when they're done with, that common people eat out of, are going to be just like the sacred bowls that they catch the blood from the lamb to sprinkle to make things holy. And all who come are going to take pots and they're going to cook and they're going to celebrate together. And then this last part, uh, on that day, there'll be no, no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. You can read this. It seems a little bit like prejudiced or race, racial or whatever. We don't want those people. But remember, the Canaanites symbolize 
the group of people who are sacrificing children to false gods. They're the ones who are worshiping idols and who are corrupting the people of Israel. It was the Canaanite influence and, and, and those surrounding gods that were the reason that Israel was sent into exile. So there's not even going to be a trace of that in the house of the Lord anymore. So this is a moment where, you know, we live, as much as we try not to, we live with such a sacred and secular divide. You go to church and it's sacred. You go to work, that, you, that, that's secular. Right? You, you, you go to your youth group, that's sacred. You go to, to school, that's secular. I do my devotional time in the morning and that's my sacred time and the rest of my day I'm just kind of in the world. Uh, it's not the way it's intended to be, right? All of every moment of every day with him in intimacy and this is the description he's giving. There's not gonna be graded holiness It's no longer like the holy of holies is where God's presence is and everything's gold and only one person can access. And then out here, there's a little bit more access. Now here's a little bit more access. And then you've you've got this kind of outer place where the women are allowed to hang out with some of the people that may be disabled. That's that's no longer going to be the way it's going to be. Complete holiness as Israel is fully cleansed. This is the moment as you think about all of the things going on in the world. There is a day coming when all of that will be cleansed where everything will be holy. If there's a law made, it will be holy. If there's a pen made, it will be holy. If there's a song sung, whether it's written about God or not, it will be holy. Jesus is coming back. (laughs) Uh, Andrew Hill says, the eschatological day eliminates the Levitical concerns for ritual purity and any idea of graded holiness that informed priestly understanding. That idea is completely eradicated. And the whole world becomes once again like Eden, the, the inhabitation of God. So Jesus come back, everything's going to be put right in the world. This is the hope of our faith. Jesus is coming back and there will be judgment. Those who know him are resurrected to eternal life. Those who reject him receive the consequence of that rejection. Jesus is coming back for his bride. If he comes back today, what will he find? Think about our church. If Jesus comes back today, will he be pleased with our gathering and our relationships? Are we living and doing what he wants? Are we as the church sharing the gospel with the community around us? Are we giving generously? Are we like God standing up for and fighting for the marginalized and the oppressed? Are we helping the poor? Are we making disciples? Are we being agents of reconciliation? Are we overcoming conflict and living as people of peace? If Jesus comes back today, will he be pleased with what he finds here? Think about your own life. Is your life his? Or does it look more like the people of the world? If Jesus comes back today and takes assessment and stood in front of you, Do you look like him or do you look like something else? Are you sharing his word with the people around about you? Are you loving sacrificially? Are you giving generously? Are you advocating for the poor and the oppressed and the needy? Are you active in making disciples? Because here's the end of the story. He says, behold, I'm coming soon. For 2,000 years, the church has been clinging to this verse. Behold, I am coming soon. And what do we know? 
everything that Scripture has said has happened. So we know with confidence that this is coming. I look at the world around about, and I'm like, God, you've got to be coming soon, right? <laughs> Behold, I am coming soon. But how will he find us? And are we ready for it? Let me pray. God, thank you that a day is coming. As we sat in pre-service prayer, I just heard over and over, you saying, behold, I'm coming soon. Lo, I am coming soon. God, are we ready? Thank you that you're not leaving us to this broken world, but that you're returning, that sin will be defeated, that death will be defeated. Thank you as we sang in that song. There's a day where you're gonna return and we're gonna meet you in the air and we're gonna see you face to face and we're gonna be transformed to be like you because we see you as you are. Lord, we ask that you would purify us just like you were promising Israel. Would you purify us to look more like you? Lord, would you teach us how to live in your way, how to share your gospel effectively, how to be generous, how to put off the old self and put on the new? Would you teach us what it means to be the church? I think we're still trying to discover what that means. Lord, would you help us to live out this faith? And Lord, my prayer for us is that on that moment when you return for your bride, that you would look at us and say, well done, my good and pleasing servant. God, may you find us worthy. So we give ourselves to you. We say, increase our faith. Strengthen our backs. Help us to persevere. And may we be instruments that are sent out as we return to you and you return to us. Lord, as we lift you up and we fix our eyes on you, knowing that you're coming back for us. That help us to live each day as if you're already here aware of your presence and fully surrender to everything you want us to do. God, we love you. We praise you. In the name of Jesus.